Thank you very much, Roy. And good evening, everyone. I was going to say it's good to be here. I guess I'm here most Sundays, um, but it is good to be able to share something from Judges. Um, there'll be some of you who've been here, I guess, most Sunday nights or some Sunday nights anyway, as we've been going through Judges. And we're going to take a, a step further on, and we're going to go to chapters 10 and 11. And before we get there and look at the, the verses before us, let's do a wee bit of a, a recap and see how we've gotten here. Um, I want to look at these two chapters as a drama. I'm not a very dramatic person, as you know, but we'll look at it as two acts with five scenes. And what I'm going to ask you to do as we go through it, look at each scene from the viewpoint of one of the main actors in the particular passage. So we're going to look at Yahweh, the Lord, God, the people, people of Israel, and also one of the characters, Jephthah. So, remember the scenario, or think about it. If you were the king of a group of people, put yourself in that position. You're a monarch. You've got a group of people you're responsible for. And they keep getting into trouble. So time and time again, you rescue them. Not only that, you give them leaders, heroes, people who can lead them and can guide them in the right way. You've given your power and ability as king, your authority to these heroes, to these leaders, to save your people. But nevertheless, it gets to the stage where it's so lawless that someone who wasn't appointed by you, wasn't called by you, takes power. And this person devastates your country, your people, brings them to their knees in three years of chaos that comes from within the group of people. If you were Yahweh, the Lord, the King, What would be your next move? What we're thinking about tonight is after Abimelech. Do you remember Abimelech from last week? If you were here, in the middle of the book of Judges, Abimelech was Gideon's son through a concubine, a prostitute, who sacrificially slaughtered his 70 half-brothers, took the throne and then consumed Israel in three years of bloodletting. Remember the parable? His one surviving half-brother, Jotham, issued a parable about fire coming out of a thorn bush, consuming the bush and everything around it. And that's what happened. The thorn bush was Abimelech. He consumed those around him, and those around him, in fact it was a woman who killed him, consumed him. Things had descended to an all-time low in Israel. Abimelech was a usurper, not bringing peace but bringing anarchy. And the people who confronted him, if you look at the passage in chapter 9, verse 27, weren't deliverers themselves. What were they? They were drunken idol worshippers. They confronted Abimelech and there was self-destruction 
on both sides. So you are the king. You are Yahweh. You are the Lord. What's your next move? What would you do next to these people? So let's read Judges chapter 10 and the first five verses. It's page 254 in the Pew Bibles. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons, he rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Ja'ar, which means the settlements of Ja'ar. When Ja'ar died, he was buried in Camon. So what would you do next? What did the Lord do? Three years of anarchy. What did he do? He sent them 45 years of peace. 45 years of peace. Tola and Jar, if that's the right pronunciation, are minor judges. That doesn't mean they're not important in the book of Judges, but it just means that there's very little details about them. It says that Tola saved Israel, which is exactly what Othniel, Shamgar and Gideon did. So in terms of the number of verses, they're minor. In terms of what they did, they aren't minor. They saved Israel. They were God's agents. God's people deserve destruction, judgment, after three years of chaotic frenzy. That's how one person describes it. And what do they get? They get 45 years of peace. What a great God. 45 years of peace and stability. Isn't it wonderful to think that the time of Abimelech was not the last word written over Israel? The Lord didn't allow his people to be trampled on forever. The New Testament puts it like this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient. And that's what grace, another word which Roy could have put in to the acronym for grace, even though there's no P's in there. Patient. It's God's patience. That's what grace is. Abimelech his fiery thornbush rule was not the last word for Israel. God grants peace and time for the Israelites to respond, to repent. He's giving us time today to respond, to repent. Are we grasping it? Are we grasping it with both hands? Romans 3.26 says, God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Are you believing 
trusting in Jesus in this time of opportunity that he presents. It hasn't just lasted 45 years. God's grace has lasted 2,000 years. Longer than any of us have been alive. Time of grace, time of peace, time of stability. So how did the people respond to that? Let's read a wee bit further, chapter 10 and verses 6 to 14. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go, cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. We end up with a time of grace followed by a time of national tragedy. We're in the midpoint of the book of Judges. Do you remember the cycle in Judges, which David introduced to us? The people were disobedient, so God sent punishment. Then the people repented. God sent a deliverer, and God gave them peace, gave them rest. And then the cycle would start over again. So we're back at that point again of the Israelites being disobedient, of doing evil. But this time they just didn't do evil. The emphasis in the passage is on that that they really did evil. This sort of thing that David Dunlop would say, they did it big time. They really did evil. They didn't just serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths as they did in the time of Gideon. They served the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven different types of deities they were serving. All of them. So Israel's state isn't just critical, it's disastrous. So what does this severe apostasy lead to? Well, it led to severe punishment. Double the norm of judges, where you had two people groups, the Philistines and the Ammonites, coming up and invading and dealing with the Israelites. Interesting, isn't it? They were serving the Philistinian and the Ammonite gods. But yet, the Philistines and Ammonites still came to extract judgment on them. So what we have in Judges so far 
Don't think of it so much as a cycle. Think of it almost as a spiral. A downward spiral. The people were fast heading downhill. And what resulted was 18 years of shattering and crushing right across the land from the east of the Jordan to the west of the Jordan after 45 years of peace and opportunity. So, what do the Israelites do next? Well, what's the next bit in the cycle? Repentance, isn't it? And that seems to come in verse 10. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. But look at the reply that God gives in verses 11 to 14. Israel, this has happened before, hasn't it? When oppressed, you cried out. I came to your aid. But what happened then? Well, you forsook me. You served those other gods before. So you know what? Let those gods save you now. The ones you have chosen, go to them for help. Don't come to me. I want you to note two things here. Firstly, what the Israelites were doing was simply recognizing their situation. Recognizing the awfulness of what had happened to them by forsaking God and going elsewhere. But there was no sign of repentance. Certainly to date there had been no lasting repentance. To paraphrase a statement you may have heard on the news over the weekend. They could not escape the conclusion that what they had done was in some way wrong. It had catapulted them into horrendous circumstances. They wanted the circumstances fixed. They wanted out of the hole they were in. And that's different to genuine repentance which acknowledges not just the awfulness of the situation, but the awfulness of what was being done. The message that comes out of this is that recognition is not the same as repentance. Recognition is not the same as repentance. And we need to be so careful of that, you know. As we recognize what wrongs we have done, God asks more than that of us. He asks wholehearted change, wholehearted repentance. You know what repentance is? We've all been taught it in Sunday school. Repentance is an about face. Can't do that without walking away from the microphone, where you turn around. But the people didn't do that. They didn't about face from what they were doing. And the second thing I want you to note from here is that what they were trying to do was manipulate God. They were trying to treat God like a slot machine God. We do that sometimes, don't we? We know what the religious rules are, at least we think we do. We do what we want. We regret it. We ask God to forgive us. It's all good for a while. And then we do what we want again. We regret it. We ask for forgiveness, and then it's good for a while. This passage says to us, no, God doesn't act like some sort of colossal slot machine responding in that way with us. We cannot play fast and loose 
with the mercy of God. We can't presume on God's mercy. One day, God could say to us, like he said to the Israelites, the things that you value, the things that you have embraced, the things that you have embraced as you have forsaken me, let them save you when you are in trouble. Let them save you when you are in trouble. There will be silence. Because whatever it is that you embrace, which is not God, are no more able to save than an Iron Age, Baal, or Ashtoreth. No more able. So tonight, let's not treat God's mercy and grace cheaply. He offers us a time of grace as he offered the Israelites, maybe even more than the 45 years that they had. But they treated his grace with contempt. So what happens after that? Where God said, cry to your gods. The Israelites, look at verse 15. The Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So how does God respond? I mean, what would you do? These people just don't seem to learn. How does God respond? Amazingly, he responds with compassion. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. I don't think that true repentance actually did suddenly appear. Because the Israelites, as I've said to date, have given a sign of repentance and have always gone back to these foreign gods. But the clear reading of the verse, that verse 10, sorry, 16, is that God acted because of his compassion, not because of their actions. Matthew 9:36 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, our God, is compassionate. And we just need to believe that sometimes, that what has happened in my life is not because of my actions. It's because of his compassion. It's despite my actions. God's holiness demands that he judges. Yet his heart in this passage moves him to spare his people. And it's a tension which runs throughout scripture, doesn't it? Romans 11.22 summarizes it very well. Consider the kindness and sternness of God. Consider the kindness of and the sternness of God. And maybe you're here tonight and you consider God as being severe, as stern, as unyielding. Maybe the heavens seem like concrete to you tonight. And what does this passage cry out to us? It says to us, our God is a compassionate God. Our God is is a compassionate God who cannot be
bear our misery. So there was a time of compassion. So far we've seen a time of grace, unfortunately followed by a time of national tragedy, and then God showing yet again compassion and mercy to Israel. That's Act 1. hope you're still with me. Three scenes. Act 2 has only got two scenes. Act 2 is all about Jephthah. Jephthah the Gileadite. So what I'm going to do is read these first 11 verses. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war in Israel, the elders of Gilead came to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so that we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Don't you hit me and drive sorry, didn't you hit me and drive me from my father's house? Why then do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all the words before the Lord in Mizpah. Act 2, enter Jephthah, an unlikely judge, if ever there was an unlikely judge, son of a prostitute, born outside the clan, at odds with his half-brothers, chased away. Who does that remind you of? He became an opportunist, like Abimelech. He attracted a following, and he seems to have lived a life as a sort of Robin Hood, and he's merry men, or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to make it really contemporary. Not. He was approached by the elders of his father's home to lead them in battle against the Ammonites. It took two goes, but he eventually says yes, and God uses him to bring a mighty victory. So like, in terms of background, Abimelech, and yet so unlike Abimelech. There were two key differences, I think, between Abimelech and Jephthah. The first one was that Jephthah was concerned about how God would use him. Verse 9, if I fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, and then in verse 11, and he repeated all the words before the Lord at Mizpah. Nowhere do we read of Abimelech consulting the Lord. 
Nowhere at all do we read of that. And then if you look at what happened subsequently, over in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he brought a great victory. God used Jephthah. And God's Spirit is tellingly absent from the whole story of Abimelech. Jephthah's background was no impediment to God using him. He was ostracized, he was estranged from his family, from his clan, from his country. And I want to ask a very simple question tonight. Are we willing to stop letting our background, whatever it is, and whatever the circumstances is, be an impediment to God using us? Some of us may think, given what I've done, been like, been involved in, my inabilities, my lack of confidence, how I've been treated in the past, God can't use me. But he can. He used Jephthah, an outcast. And Jephthah even worked with those who had ostracized him. Can we work with those who we find it a little bit difficult to get along with? Or look at it the other way round. Are we always willing and ready to work with those who are from a different background to us and we might sort of suspect them or not be as comfortable with them as folk from our own background God chose for his purpose here what man had rejected where do you hear that 1 Peter 2 4, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him that was the story of the Lord Jesus rejected and yet used by God think about the disciples I came across this little sidelight on the disciples it's done up as a memorandum to Jesus son of Joseph woodcrafter's shop Nazareth from the Jordan management consultants Jerusalem subject staff aptitude evaluation Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we've not only run the results through our computer but also arranged personal interviews with each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept we would recommend in managing sorry, they do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leadings and they are both registered highly on the manic depressive scale one of the candidates however shows resourcefulness 
meets people well, has a keen business mind, mind, has contact in high places, he is highly motivated, ambitious and innovative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. God's ways are not our ways. God uses the people that we would not expect. And sometimes those people are us. God can use us. I'm going to skip the next section, which is about Jephthah's dialogue with um, the Ammonite king. And you can read that at your leisure. But basically, it's Jephthah trying to engage in dialogue with the Ammonite king to avoid war. To avoid war. And he says that the land they were claiming wasn't theirs to claim. It's land God gave to the Israelites. And then he says to him, remember Balak? He didn't fight Israel. He hired Balaam to curse them, using words, not force. And anyway, the land has been like this for 300 years. Why make an issue of it now? So I'll leave that to you to look at in your free time. But what resulted from this was a time of deliverance, where Jephthah was used to deliver the people from the hand of the Ammonites. And then we come to the last part of this chapter, chapter 11. In some ways the most difficult part of this passage. I really wanted to skip it, but felt I couldn't. We have to deal with this, because it's in Scripture, and it's there as all Scripture. It's useful. So where have we come to here? Just remember where we've come to. There was a time of grace when Tola and Jar gave 45 years of peace. But there was a missed opportunity and there was national tragedy. From that, the Lord was compassionate and Jephthah was raised up and there was deliverance. And yet, sadly, what happens now is a time, again, this time of personal tragedy. So let's read verses 29 to 40. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites. The Lord gave them into his hands and he devastated them. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, O my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you, 
of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills, weak with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, she said. He said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. A sad and a difficult passage, isn't it? So how do we deal with this passage? Two possible interpretations. One, the girl lived as a virgin. In other words, her life was spared. Hence the emphasis in verse 37 of her not marrying. So that's one possibility. Second possibility is that she was literally sacrificed as a burnt offering. Those seem to be the only two possibilities. Either interpretation is not without its difficulties, as you can appreciate. However, we may well ask, why would she take two months to mourn, not marrying, if she had the rest of her life to do so? The plain reading of the text, I'm inclined to think, is that Jephthah sacrificed this unnamed only daughter, his only child. Martin Luther agrees. He says, one would like to think that he did not sacrifice her. But the text clearly says that he did. So to quote one commentator, where have we got to when such a thing can happen in a supposedly God-fearing community? How could the Lord continue to work among them? It's a difficult one. Remember, Jephthah is very much a man of his time. The time of judges was lawless. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He'd lived his whole life as a brigand and was no doubt influenced by those around him. He wasn't the only Israelite to consider child sacrifice, was he? Who else? Didn't Abraham consider sacrificing his only child? His future, the future of the promise, in the same way with Jephthah, was his only one. But for Jephthah, there was no voice from heaven and no substitute lamb. Did Jephthah rashly think, I'll vow to do what Abraham was asked to do? The Lord will honor that and provide an alternative. Did he think that? We don't know. And scripture, what does scripture say about it? Hebrews 11.32 lists Jephthah as one of the heroes of the faith. A couple of things we can say. Israel's law forbade human sacrifice. There is no getting around that. Leviticus 18.21 Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. But it seemed in Israel that basic morality had been so eroded that what seemed good to do was actually terribly wrong. 
And yet I think the silence of Scripture here actually condemns Jephthah. Because the writer doesn't need to comment on it. I mean, if you look at the Old Testament time and time again, you'll see things there which you think, that is not right. But the writer hasn't said anything about it. But as in cases like this, the writer doesn't have to say anything about it because it's so obviously against God's law. So what was going on here? It seems that Jephthah made a bargain with God, which he felt obligated to keep. And you think, full Jephthah, do we ever do that? Do you ever bargain with God? We profess to believe in God's unconditional love and yet put us into a tight corner and what will we do? We'll promise anything to get out of the tight corner, won't we? Anything from get my car started and I will to if only the serious situation, this illness, this financial extremity were moved from me or my family, then I could wholeheartedly serve you, Lord. We bargain with God. Did the Lord honour Jephthah's vow? Well, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah before he made the vow. Before he made the vow. And when the victory came, there is no mention of the vow. The vow, I think, was unnecessary. And to vow and promise in this way is not the way to work or to deal with the God of the Bible. So I think we need to be careful as we think of what Jephthah did here and what it teaches us. There was victory that day in Gilead, but the sky was very, very grey. It was a personal tragedy. Hebrews 11 commends him as a man of faith because of his trust against all the odds and his willingness to lead a fight he didn't need to partake of. So that's Jephthah, Act 2. So where have we come from? Let me summarize very briefly. Tola and Jair, grace. How do we treat God's grace tonight? Do we respond to his grace? Or do we respond like the Israelites? And then when they were greeted with tragedy, they couldn't repent. They recognized that there was something wrong, but they couldn't repent. And yet God was still compassionate with them. And remember tonight, our God is a compassionate God. And God gave them Jephthah, a time of deliverance. God can use anyone, even me, even you. And remember the disciples, how God used them. And Jephthah's daughter speaks of personal tragedy. God doesn't bargain. And we shouldn't try to bargain with God. So we've reached the midpoint of Judges. Forgive me for, for the length of time, but it was two long chapters. The cycle has become a spiral. A downward spiral. Have you been following what's been going on? Ehud the Deliverer gave Israel 80 years of peace. Othniel gave them 40 years. Deborah gave them 40 years. Gideon gave them 40 years. Tola, 23. 
Jar, 22. Jephthah, 6. As things spiral downward, almost out of control. Are we responding tonight as we should to a God of grace and compassion?